0: The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge.
1: The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way.
0: Welcome to the Chat Lounge. I'm Tu Today we're dedicating a special episode to China's extraordinary road to reopening over the past year. In January last year, when the whole nation of China was gearing up to welcome athletes from around the world at the Beijing Winter Olympic Games, Omicron, a new variant of COVID-19, was also spreading on the Chinese mainland, nearly two years after the pandemic began. Given the high contagiousness of Omicron, there were concerns over whether the Games could be held as scheduled. But Dr. Wu Jiwei, director of the Center for Public Health Research, Nanjing University, and Mark Dreyer, host of the China Sports Insider podcast and author of the book Sporting Superpower and Insider's View on China's Quest to Be the Best, said they had no concerns at all.
2: Well, actually, even you do not find uh, Omicron in Beijing, the authority has a huge uh, pressure on this issue. and right. I just read that the game organizers and local government issued a, a protocol for managing the game. Uh, it's called close closer circle management. Basically, trying to separate the, the Olympic bubble from the outside world, uh, uh, from the audience, from other, you know, the uh, service personnel. Mm-hmm. So this uh, should be in the... Uh, Good way of uh, limiting the uh, the infection scale. I think the bottom line is that you can't prevent 100%. Okay, from the infection, mm-hmm. but you could limit the infection uh, developing into a large scale and uh, have a certain kind of uh, impact on the games and the individuals. In winter sports, you can't uh, completely avoid the body body contact. So uh, you know some infection. I think is inevitable. The key is that. It, have to identify the, at the early stage and prevent the infection from spreading into other athletes. So this is called this Olympic bubble or the closed circuit management was designed. Mm. Um, it, it's critical to prevent this into a large outbreak. So I think it's possible because if you look at the, the Tokyo Summer Olympics, there were only less than 500 cases were reported. So if you by careful management, it's possible to control the uh, virus infection into a minimal and uh, allow the game to continue uh, smoothly.
0: Yeah, you're talking about some 400 cases detected uh, during the Tokyo Olympics. That's within the closed loop, right? But what about the cases outside this closed loop? To what extent will it affect uh, the Winter Olympics being held as as scheduled?
2: Well, the athletes uh, are completely separated from the outside and from the audience. Mm. Because uh, if, if you look at the so-called closed circuit management, uh, the athletes, when they landed in Beijing, they used a special passage, uh, uh, you know, pathway, and they were, they were transported using designated vehicles and to the Olympic uh, village. So basically, they have no contact with the outside. Uh, but for the audience, I think uh, in terms of audience management, it's a lot easier. Because you can on them, uh, you could uh, conduct a prior a nuclear acid test. Uh, the issue is actually the local government can do it and do it well. So I'm not particularly worried about how, uh, you know, outside the Olymp- uh, Olympic bubbles will be managed. It's uh, relatively easy because the, the overall infection rates in China are pretty low. But the key issue is how to manage it. The uh, Olympic bubble, the uh, situation inside, uh, the athletes, once you have uh, sporadic infections, how this is going to be managed then, uh, it, and uh, treated?
0: I've read some stories from Caixin, I think, during the Tokyo Olympics, although foreign journalists had to quarantine uh, in a hotel for three days upon arrival in Japan, they were allowed to go outside the hotel or for um, no more than 15 minutes per day. And when you left the hotel, you were, you were supposed to register at the time at the front desk. But the management was very loose there. And whether you registered was entirely up to you yourself. And the hotel accommodated not only journalists, uh, foreign media, but also uh, local guests. How much of a concern is it for you that um, the rules are not implemented as strictly as they are supposed to be, Mark?
3: I don't see that as a concern at all to be honest. I think I think the rules will be will be very clear. I think the bubble will be very tightly sealed uh, in effect. I know it's a sort of a series of of bubbles this closed loop management system. I mean just just uh, in the last few days we had an announcement from the Beijing City government that if you see an Olympic transport vehicle which will be ferrying Olympic participants from one venue to another and there is a car accident for example, you know Don't mix with the participants. Like stay in your vehicle. Keep your windows tightly sealed. Mm. You know, like like there's no, there's nothing they haven't thought about in terms of cross contamination.
0: The outcome was just as they had predicted. The Beijing Winter Olympics was a success, not only as a major sports event, but also in terms of China's management of COVID. The virus spread within the Olympic closed loop system ended in the early stage of the games and there was no spillover outside the closed loop. The Chinese government's dynamic zero-COVID policy proved to be quite effective in curbing the virus in the country with a population of 1.4 billion people. By the end of the first quarter of last year, when U.S. COVID deaths stood at nearly 1 million, the total number of people that died from the disease was below 5,000 on China's mainland. In its annual trust barometer released early in the year, the US public relations firm Edelman found China topped the barometer with its average trust in institutions, including government, NGOs, business, and media, standing at 83, up 11 points from 2021. In sharp contrast, trust in those institutions fell sharply in Germany, Australia, the Netherlands, South Korea, and the United States. Senior editor and columnist Ian Goodrum of China Daily and writer and columnist Einar Tangen said they were not surprised.
4: The levels of trust have, have been high for quite some time, but this is, of course, uh, a big jump. I would say that, of course, the, a major factor in that is the undeniably effective way that China has been able to control the pandemic in a way that practically every other country on the planet has uh, struggled with. But also, I think, the awareness of the rest of the world and how the rest of the world has been handling the pandemic, right? I mean, when, when you've got countries that are having six-figure case counts in, at a, in a day uh, during the current Omicron wave and the first wave, it's undeniable the fact that this society has been able to do something that many other societies, societies that frequently judge China mm. and, uh, and speak ill of China, seem incapable of doing, or I would argue unwilling to do. So I think that the contrast between pandemic responses has been a major factor because it's not just, it's not only the fact that China has been able to do things effectively. It's that that so many other places have been unwilling or unable to do anything significant Mm -hmm. to stem the spread of virus and keep people healthy and safe. So people in the West tend to talk about people in China being uh, propagandized or brainwashed or what have you. But the fact is they're they're very aware of what's going on in the rest of the world and they see it for what it is. And that makes them appreciate what they have uh, even
0: more. Einer, I guess you must be not surprised by this.
5: Well, not, not at all. I mean, uh, quite frankly, and I go back to my colleagues uh, saying that this is, uh, you know, kind of a triumph of planning over populism. What have you seen across the world during this crisis time is a... A profound abdication of leadership, you know, whether it was Trump or whether it was Bolsonaro or you, you name it. These were people who took the populist stance. A lot of them said, "No, don't worry about the uh, about COVID," and they weren't able to stem either the health effects or the economic ones. Now China is emerging from this, and you know, it's it's uh, what I see here is this kind of contrast. Uh, on one end of the seesaw is China, where everything has gone up. All right, as the numbers you've talked about. And remember, the big title for uh, Edelman's uh, study is this cycle of mistrust that has uh, plagued the world in this last year.
6: Mm.
7: Uh,
5: In every one of the years that they've done this, they've kind of selected a theme and said, this is really what you should be paying attention to. So within this cycle of mistrust on one end is basically China. On the other end, you have the developed countries very, very unusual. That the ones who are who are richest, who have the most access to healthcare, they have the facilities, are doing almost the worst. The U.S. I mean, literally, has done the worst in the world in terms of handling the pandemic. Uh, They're coming back economically a little bit uh, right now, and they're above the 2019 levels, but it's still in doubt because of you know these lingering issues about how to address the health health side of it. So I'm not surprised of it. But, you know, you, we have to kind of frame this in some sort of way. It's not just uh, China has done a good job at this. It's really years and years of planning have put uh, China in a position where it's able to handle these kinds of things. Remember going back to Wuhan, the ability to create massive new hospitals in a matter of two weeks, uh, enough for thousands of beds, etc. This is unheard of. Uh, in other countries. Now, that didn't happen because somebody waved their wand and said, gee, we need a hospital here and do it quick. They had all of the planning in place so that they were able to respond. They had, you need beds, you, you need the portable facilities. It's a logistical nightmare, and it cannot be done unless you're prepared. This is, seems to me the, the one thing that seems to be going through all of these different uh, things. I think there was, I counted it up, there were about uh, 38 different graphics or or factoids that they put into this uh, Edelman study. And if you start going through it, it's just very, very clear. On one side, this is the lack of leadership, uh, divisiveness, political turmoil, civil unrest, social unrest. And on the other side are the countries who were able to plan, control things to a very high degree,
0: Mm. and that would be China. Another area where China had lift last year was its influence in Africa. A survey conducted by South Africa's H. Kowitz Family Foundation found China overtook the U.S. as the foreign power regarded by young Africans as having the most significant favorable influence on the continent. In Western narratives, it's because of what they call China's COVID vaccine diplomacy. But Mbarak Mgabo, a Ugandan journalist and author Thomas Pauken II, disagreed.
8: I think it's 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 not fair because Covid is just two years back. and I think these results are just a representative of what has been growing over time and remember the previous research has always put us uh into you know lead in terms of influencing the african pop, you know population and the young people but i think it's a combination of so many factors looking at all the projects that are being put in place many of them actually many of the westerners and many of the people out there focus on the viability of such infrastructure projects of whether they are viable whether they carry some economic you know, viability after completion, but they actually ignore the fact that even during the construction of these projects, during uh, that process, a lot is transferred. Skills are transferred, employment, are, you know, jobs are provided. And all of these, when they come together, the positive impact. On their lives. And I doubt whether it's COVID 19 diplomacy is just a component of what exactly is taking place. Let me give you an example. Many things in Africa, like, for example, Huawei, let's take an example of Huawei. Huawei provides very cheap phones, for example, mobile phones that actually get African young population who have no capacity to buy for example, an Apple phone, they can as well get a phone at as cheap as $25, which may not be so much good, but at least it can as well give them, you know, access to information and internet, which is unlike with many of the maybe US companies. And and these are things that when put together kind of show African young population that there is a positive impact. And also these kind of engagements help them also reach the desired goals.
0: To Tom, what's your first response to such a finding? Are you surprised or disappointed or or suspicious? Uh, Not surprised. I would imagine many
7: Westerners are suspicious, but uh, they uh, have not lived in China or many of them have not lived or worked in China. So that being said, there are many misunderstandings. The, the facts are is the Africans have good relations with the Chinese. They have done a lot of business deals. The Belt and Road in Initiative has been very effective, and China's doing a lot of building in Africa, and that is helping the country. And many young Africans are no longer thinking about political ideologies, but they're thinking about business. They're thinking about their future professional careers. And that being said, They see China as a better business partner simply because the Chinese have put their money where their mouth is, unlike many Western countries who talk a lot about helping Africa but are only delivering either aid or not even doing business deals. What they're doing is they're just simply treating the Africans more in a subservient manner, whereas the Chinese are treating the Africans in a more equal manner. So I believe that's why the Africans, especially the young, Are uh, eager to partner up with many Chinese.
1: The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way.
0: You're listening to the Chat Lounge, and we are reviewing China's extraordinary road to reopening over the past year. It's not just Africans. Business people from other continents were also eager to seek opportunities amid an economic slowdown. China remained committed to opening its fast market despite interruptions caused by the COVID headwinds. The country shared business opportunities by continuing to host major trade fairs, including the China International Consumer Products Expo, also known as the Hainan Expo. Managing Director Shen Zijun at the world's leading insurance company, AXA, and Global Media Officer Ruslan Tulanov of the Hainan Provincial Bureau of International Economic Development explained why they value the Hainan Expo.
6: So first, we are impressed by the size of the exposure in Hainan uh, with more than 600 new products released this year. Uh, it's probably the biggest expo that I have attended actually until now. Uh, so we see a deep potential of consumption in Hainan and its potential in the future. Actually, when people think about consumptions, usually they think about luxury, they think about material goods. But actually, service has definitely a plus within the consumption, mm-hmm. especially with the economic growth as well as the increase of disposable income. I deeply believe that people in Hainan as well as in many free trade zones like in Hong Kong and other regions will ask for more and more high quality services as well. Uh, That's basically the reason why AXA is here this year. And we deeply believe that the Hainan Expo is held to serve the construction and development of the Hainan free trade zone. Mm. That's why insurance has definitely a place here uh, with no exception. For example, we help to create sustainable tourism. We help to create sustainable supply chain. That's why the theme of AXA this year is Climate Change and ESG. So AXA Climate, as the name indicates, is working on different topics like climate change, biodiversity, carbon and so on. So we have, uh, during the expo, signed different kind of strategic partnerships uh, with Hainan IDB mm-hmm. as well as very international brand of service companies as well in mm-hmm. the private sectors. And we hopefully explore different kind of opportunities into uh, sustainable agriculture supply chain in Hainan province.
9: We have our own very well set time goal, which is uh, by the year of 2025 to build the uh, free trade port with Chinese characteristics here in Hainan is going to be the world's uh, most influential recognized free trade ports, like uh, Singapore, like uh, Hong Kong. Second, I think by the year of 2035, of course, we need to improve our business environment. It needs to achieve the uh, most high level business environment in China. After that, we also need to achieve the uh, world's best business environment you know so we have very direct timeline and we are going there steadily step-by-step step. besides those goals we also want to build Hainan as international tourism and consumption destination secondly we also would like to build Hainan as, as a medical destination as I mentioned we already have some foreigners working there you know
0: you got MBA Training here, basketball, like
9: uh, the, the team, yeah. Oh yeah, NBA. Long time ago, they established a, a here company. They have a boutique when they sell the products. They have a academy to teach kids and the young population to uh, how to understand the professional basketball and stuff. And that's unique. To and also Barcelona, the football club from Spain. They're very professional. They're enjoying. their staying here in Hainan. The Spanish people, they love Hainan. And um, besides also other, Sanya is also a very uh, good tourism destination. Actually in Hainan now we have so many hotel chains, theme parks, IP theme parks, you know, it's very important. Uh, We would like to create this kind of atmosphere when they come to Hainan and they can experience those IP theme parks. Like for example, Beijing has a Beijing Universal Resort. We're also inviting them to consider here in Hainan because the opportunity is great. For example, 360 days of sunshine, the amusement rides are tax-free, you know, and then now is a tourism destination when the people from all over China are coming to Hainan, you know, Hainan is becoming something new that you cannot miss. If you miss, sorry, the chances or the train is gone.
0: No one would want to miss a chance helpful to their development, especially at a time full of uncertainties. That's why, when over 2,000 delegates to the 20th Party Congress of China's ruling party went through the work report delivered by party leader Xi Jinping, observers from around the world were following closely, trying to find the direction and feel the pulse of the world's second-largest economy. Professor Joseph Mahoney at East China Normal University shared his view.
1: On the front end, and I think the first thing that struck me was overwhelmingly his focus on development and linking this obviously to the goals of building common prosperity, improving standards of living, not being so much concerned about the old goals of very high growth rates, but uh, thinking more about uh, high quality development, innovation-led growth, this sort of thing. That you know, could improve uh, standards of living, access to quality education and healthcare, higher life expectancy rates, so forth and so on. The other thing that uh, stood out, because you know we didn't expect to hear much about Hong Kong, but we expected to hear something about Taiwan, given all the provocations in, in the past several years. And I think the message of peace and the desire to foster peace and a shared future for humanity was made very clear, but also the willingness, if necessary, to prevent Taiwan's independence, to protect Chinese sovereignty, that was made very clear. And then finally, the part where he talked about China needing to become autonomous, that we live in a world where there's a lot of chaos, And that, uh, you know, certainly he didn't make direct reference to Joe Biden's national security strategy, which has targeted China even more so right before the Congress. But, um, you know, we've known for some time that the United States was going to be targeting China's technology sectors. And uh, Beijing has been preparing for this. And he emphasized this when he talks about uh, autonomy. But at the same time, you know, we see China still committed to globalization to uh, internationalism. We see this with the Belt Road Initiative, the Global Development Initiative, the Global Security Initiative. But we also see it with uh, the domestic economic policy under the rubric of dual circulation, where on the one hand, we will try to build stronger domestic economy, but at the same time still try to go outward, still try to promote uh, some export-led growth.
0: Another issue that's been closely watched by the rest of the world, especially the international business community, is the exit of, uh, of China's current COVID policy. Have you noticed any signal indicating whether China may change it or keep it as it is now?
1: A lot of people are, are still wondering about this, but uh, here's my assessment. First, in fact, the policies have relaxed quite a bit over the past year. We know that uh, the quarantine times for uh, international arrivals has dropped significantly. We know that the testing requirements have, have dropped significantly. We know that it's easier for people to enter the country. There's still some problems with, with flights from some countries, but nevertheless. Uh, we also see that the policies for Chinese people going out are taking a significant step forward just in the past uh, week or two. Furthermore, with, with the actual policies of control, They've become much more fine-tuned. So, for example, we recently had a close contact in my building, and we locked for two days and did tests. Mm. And then once everyone uh, cleared, we were all released. And previously, that would have possibly sent all of us to the cabins, you know? So Yeah, it's it's not only shorter, but uh, a lot less dramatic. So I think things have already relaxed quite a bit. Uh, I think we'll continue to see it refined. Maybe we'll see quarantines uh, dropping to three days or four days or something like this, and I think we'll see um, more options for people going, leaving the country, for Chinese leaving, and so forth and so on. It, eventually, I think it, it's clear that uh, if we can open up and do so in a reasonable way without incurring a lot of deaths, then that would be a desirable thing for us all to see. And you know, if the government can stage resources, you know, make sure that there are plenty of ventilators and and medical staff, and drugs, and whatnot, in certain locations, then they can see about how well this type of thing.
0: According to the Ministry of Commerce, foreign direct investment in China grew by over 6% last year. And in U.S. dollar terms, the FDI rose 8% to almost $190 billion. FDI into the manufacturing industry jumped 46%, while that of high-tech industries surged by nearly 30%. Investment from the European Union almost doubled the level recorded in 2021. But as the costs to enter the traditional first-tier cities become increasingly high, which other cities on the mainland have more growth potential and business opportunities? Vice President Fabien Pacori of the French Chamber of Commerce in China shared his observations.
10: We have very uh, interesting company uh, yeah, located in the Hangzhou area, but also now more and more uh, interesting companies going to set up place in Suzhou and also in Nanjing, but also in Ruffin, so more around, yes. around Shanghai. I'm quite lucky because you know uh, the Greater Bay Area it's a fascinating place because you know it's been uniquely positioned to accelerate uh, growth and you know it's the, the GBA has many uh, ambitions and uh, it's a real world class bay area you know same as San Francisco bay or Greater tokyo area mm. Yokohama, Kobe Osaka and it's uh, it's a very interesting place for financial reform and innovation we have many uh, super good cities, of course, like Guangzhou and Shenzhen, very innovative uh, heavy league place. but we have also fascinating cities like Foshan, and also Huizhou and also Zhuhai, where you have a very, uh, I would say uh, multi-disciplinary innovation. Everything has been made for incubation for growth Mm. and uh, it's uh, yeah it's it's very good very good location we can even i was i was checking recently the latest uh, report of the world Economic forum mentioning about uh, that we can even now talk about uh, made in gba people know that place is very very dynamic one of the probably one of the most dynamic in the world
0: Mm. You mentioned uh, Zhuhai, and there is another city of Guangdong province, which is uh, Dongguan, is also on the ranking. So what gives these two cities more growth potential than other cities in the region?
10: I think what uh, mentioned the economist about emerging, it's not about uh, uh, those cities are not emerging anymore, but I think it was more about strategic emerging industries. And we've got in those new cities They're not so new, but in in Foshan, in Zhuhai, in Ruizhou, in Dongguan, we have now a a complete uh, value chain uh, Mm. concerning uh, different industries, to electronic industry, to uh, energy saving now with uh, environmental environmental protection, to healthcare service. uh, Actually, now those cities are a very good platform with a very good, uh, strong uh, development, but also having a a very solid uh, innovative uh, base. So, actually, they can grow uh, even better and better. And we, you can check for Sean nowadays. Uh, it's also a very important center for AI development and uh, very, very new technologies. So, it's, yeah, it's very fascinating,
0: very exciting. In terms of uh, the Greater Bay Area, what kind of um, sectors or businesses would you suggest foreign investors put their money in?
10: Oh, it's very. It's a very good question. We have
0: five, here in
10: the South, we have five key Sectors for for growth. Uh, the first one is innovation and technology, and we know nowadays when we think when we talk about smart manufacturing, uh, mm. it's 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 in the south definitely. So innovation and technology is the, the number two. Is the infrastructures and logistics. and when you, because we have to consider cross border exchange, you know. And so, uh, number three is about finance. We see in, in Shenzhen we have the, the Shanghai uh, free trade zone and mm. uh, financial free trade zone. They're very new, very important for financial reform, right? And uh, the two the two next points are healthcare and of course green business because it's very important about the, the new low carbon environment and to encourage, you know, to, to, to promote the, the new green technologies. Mm. So uh, anyway, those five points, key sectors are extremely important and we have them in the south. So So, you know, I I still think the South uh, will be uh, very competitive. I mean, you know, very uh, strategic.
1: The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way.
0: As the world was looking to China to adjust its mainland COVID policy to facilitate production, business activities and international exchanges... Beijing kept gradually easing restrictions and controls in managing the COVID situation, based on the finding that Omicron had a lower mortality rate than previous strains. Early in December, when China dropped the need for mandatory COVID tests to enter public places in many cities across the country, Beijing sent out a clear message that it was about to reopen all sectors of its society and economy. Then, Western mainstream media, who had previously criticized Beijing's preventive COVID policies, started to tell the idea that the policy shift could lead to millions of deaths and an uncertain economic future. How likely is that? Is Beijing capable of handling the upcoming challenges? Professor Wu Jiwei with the Center for Public Health Research at Nanjing University and Dr. Tommy Tsang-yuk-Lam with Public Health Laboratory Sciences, University of Hong Kong, explained.
2: We are ready. Uh, so basically there are a number of reasons. One is that uh, since this year, if you uh, look at it, how the, um, the Omicron outbreaks uh, all over the country basically it give us a very strong signal that uh, the current zero-COVID policy is uh, not going to uh, working on uh, controlling the virus transmission because uh, we have implemented all very stringent uh, controlling and uh, intervention policies, but still uh, the virus popped up uh, in various different cities. So a very clear indication. The second is that a lot of clinical data coming uh, back from uh, within China and also China indicating that the virus is no longer as pathogenic as the previous ones. So um, the economical burden basically uh, is it, a huge factor here that you can't uh, sustain this type of a controlling policy. Of course, over the months, we saw that the policies sometimes strengthen, sometimes uh, relaxed, and people do have anticipations that we're going to open up. So that's uh, pretty much uh, in the societal level, uh, that's what people are expecting. And uh, you know, to address your question, in the past three years of fighting COVID-19, I think in many hospitals, community levels, and community clinics, that we do have a certain preparedness in dealing with the large uh, outbreak of the individual who are becoming infected. Uh, I think the key is that we need to devise a hierarchical policy or hierarchical exclusion plan to deal with the people who are infected, but with way, different uh, severeness of the symptoms. I think this is so-called structure management. It's very critical to absorb or to treat the, the, the sick people, but still uh, we should you know, release a certain hospital capacity to deal with more uh, increase of the patient.
0: Then do you think it's fair to say that um, after three years of messy management, the pandemic is finally here on the mainland?
2: Well, I don't think that this is a, an a fair assessment. The saying that in the past two years, particularly before the year two thousand twenty-one, China's uh, policy in controlling COVID nineteen infection transmission, uh, I think, done uh, a uh, tremendous job in saving life and re- reduce the infection. This is, I uh, think, we have to admit, give credit to the policy. But uh, since moving into this year, year two thousand. 22, uh, when Omicron became the dominant variant, the situation changed because Omicron is transmitting so efficiently; doesn't cause a severe disease in most of uh, the infected people then I think the current policy is no longer working effectively and is no longer necessary. So you have to look at it in two different phases with quite a different assessment. We have to give credit to the policy, which is the effective control and intervene the COVID-19.
11: You know, I think the estimate at the Armenian level is realistic. Um, like I personally try to be more optimistic, as I believe, uh, you know, with more knowledge, and experience uh, that the government and the people accumulate, when um, the epidemic progress in the community, we will find a better way uh, to cope with the infections. Uh, and and such dynamics are uh, usually is hard, it's harder to be predict and uh, consider in uh, you know the disease prediction model that uh, you just mentioned in the papers. And, you know, if, if you look at the paper, it also provides estimate for the uh, death when you have some uh, interventions carrying out, for example, vaccination, uh, vaccinating the elderly actually substantially, uh, you know, uh, help with uh, reducing the uh, total death numbers. And, you know, that echo you know, uh, the comments uh, and experience that uh, we have in Hong Kong uh, that uh, protecting uh, the elderly from the severe Fatal infections are, are critical.
2: Uh, in the past three years, in the main, uh, in China, when the outbreaks happen in one city, usually you will see that government uh, quickly mobilize resources in you know, other regions to send in help. So that's actually one of the very effective coordination and cooperation in dealing with the pandemic. So let's think about the one once we're opening up and when people becoming infected. Uh, but the infection will not happen overnight. It, it's a gradual process. In some areas and cities will be more people infected, in some are less. So the government would do is that by mobilizing the regions or cities uh, which have certain resources to help others. So by doing this, basically, then we could flatten the, the case curve and flatten the death rates and stretch out the epidemic in the country to a longer period. So if are doing that we would more effectively, efficiently utilize our medical care services. So uh, I agree with, the, uh, with Tommy that uh, I'm optimistic in dealing with uh, the, and the potential increase in the infected cases in this opening up
0: period. Then how long do you think the mainlanders can resume their normal life? after this whole reopening coming into effect?
2: This is very hard to tell. I don't really know because all the predictions in the three-year pandemic, very few of them are correct. Most of them failed to predict. About two years ago, we thought the virus will be going away when the weather warms up, and it didn't. And we thought that, uh, you know, if we uh, control people's movement and mobility, then the virus will be, its transmission will be cut off. It didn't. So. We have to, you know, keep an open mind and uh, basically use all the common sense to coordinate with the current policy and trying to minimize the uh, the disruption of normal life.
0: It is hard to make predictions. China's tourism sector saw a faster-than-expected recovery after its COVID policy shift. According to Trip.com, within half an hour of China's announced policy change, searches for travel abroad surged to a three-year high. And in Sanya, China's most famous beach resort, a hotel saw its villas priced at 120,000 yuan, or 17,400 US dollars per night, and other luxury rooms fully booked, some for one month. Who would turn out to benefit most from China's COVID policy change? Dr. Digby Ren, Senior Special Advisor and Director of the Mekong Research Center at the Royal Academy of Cambodia, and Dr. Hai Yen School of Hotel and Tourism Management, Hong Kong Polytechnic University, had this to say.
12: That everybody's getting ready for it, um, and in a big way. And I've been involved in some studies recently uh, in relation to this, the being prepared or getting prepared for Chinese travel in Southeast Asia. And I suppose one of the first things you can see is that there is a huge, massive airport building program going on. Uh, Vietnam is upgrading three or four airports. Uh, Cambodia is upgrading three airports and opening two brand new airports this year. Thailand is upgrading an airport and has a new airport, so forth and so on. So they're obviously getting ready for the influx um, and looking forward to, you know, a very bright future Uh, with Chinese tourism. But they're also uh, beginning to start uh, preparing marketing campaigns and communications campaigns. And they've also reconsidered how they are going to message and talk to uh, Chinese tourists. And so that's very interesting. Uh, So there's sort of three circles. Um, You know, there's obviously uh, expanded domestic tourism in all of these countries, including China, of course. Uh, every friend I've got has been on a holiday to Hainan. But, uh, but then there's the, the regional circuit. And the, traditionally, the Chinese have been very, very focused on that regional circuit, you know, so not too, too far within, you know, so Japan, Indonesia, Australia, et cetera, it's not too, too far. And even though there were large numbers going to Europe and the US, they were far, far greater in the, in the regional areas. And I think that's going to continue in a, in, um, and especially in Southeast Asia. And I don't think there's any real reticence in China. All the Chinese friends that I have, I've spoken to, they're all so keen to get to do something. But I think they really don't want to go too far the first time, um, mm. sort of, you know, toe in the water kind of thing. But everybody's be- getting prepared for them. And and, uh, and and that's a good thing.
0: Which country do you expect to be, you know, the top beneficiary from this um,
12: there's different groups as well i mean obviously business travellers are going to be very quick off the mark because they haven't been able to some have but very few have and they're going to want to get reconnect with their business business partners and 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 so forth and that's going to be global and it's also going to follow you know the biggest the biggest trade partners of china and that's really global in you know, 120 countries so you're going to see a, an uptick everywhere in that that regard but then there's also academic, uh, you know, a huge number of students, you know, you remember that the UK, Australia uh, and the US have really very large numbers of students, you know, over the last decade or so or more. And that's going to, there's many, many students who want to re, you know, re, reboot their studies or start their studies or revisit their studies. And um, I think we're going to see a lot of that, uh, especially in the UK and Australia. Because it's winter in uh, in, you know in the school year for those countries starts in after the late January February, so they're not too worried about that influx yet, and I think they want to get all their systems organised, and uh, that's quite complicated. I think after this long break, so you can see that administratively. They're buying a little bit of time as well, I think. Uh, When I say they, I mean uh, universities, government, immigration, customs, etc. They're trying to buy a little bit of time to get ready because I think there will be a a large flow uh, into all these countries uh, sooner rather than later. I think uh, initially, as uh, Dr. Ren said,
13: uh, the countries and regions within Asia probably will benefit uh, significantly Hong Kong and Macau, as two administrative, uh, special administrative regions of China, certainly will be probably the biggest uh, beneficiaries uh, in terms of uh, Chinese outbound tourists. Because in the past, pre-COVID-19, 70% of uh, Chinese international travelers from mainland actually uh, came to Hong Kong, Macau, maybe, and also uh, other countries like uh, Korea, Japan. So I think the major countries that will benefit the immediate opening up of uh, China's border would be the countries within Asia Pacific. For long-haul destinations like uh, United States and European countries, they probably will uh, gradually see more Chinese tourists visiting them for uh, two reasons. One, uh, the traveling cost and also the cost of living in uh, United States and Europe is very high. And therefore, traveling to these countries can be very expensive, not alone actually uh, worrying about possible COVID uh, infections. And the second reason is that uh, over the last three years, the Chinese economy, although continued to grow, the growth rate is uh, quite uh, slow. Therefore, the income level of Chinese residents probably is not as high as before. So we know uh, international travel are influenced by two key economic factors. One is the price and the cost. Uh, Second is the income level of Chinese tourists. So uh, combining these two factors, I think uh, long-haul travel will gradually probably increase, but for the short-haul travels uh, within Asia, uh, you will see a sudden surge of Chinese tourists to these countries and regions over the next uh, few months. The
1: Chat Lounge The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way.
0: Apart from the tourism sector, China's equity market was also among the first to see a rebound. Major global financial institutions have called a buy on China-related stocks, expecting the country to outshine others in terms of stock market performance. Investment bank Morgan Stanley, for the second time in months, month, raised its end-2023 targets for the MSCI China Index, which tracks 700 companies listed at home and abroad with a combined valuation of 2 trillion U.S. dollars. It also raised its projection for China's GDP growth. Morgan Stanley said the market was underappreciating the far-reaching ramifications of China's reopening and the possibility that a robust cyclical recovery could occur despite lingering structural headwinds. Dr. Liu Baocheng with the Center for International Business Ethics University of International Business and Economics said it's reasonable for the institutions to draw such a conclusion.
14: Well, I think we have a reason to be optimistic because, uh, uh, you know, the uh, Chinese financial market is uh, correlating with two main factors. One is the uh, Chinese uh, macroeconomic policy, and the other is uh, the uh, PMI, the productive activities that is going on. So, you know, uh, with the uh chinese uh, policies on two fronts one is that uh china has completely abandoned the uh COVID restrictions so travel becomes uh fully liberalized so therefore that gives uh quite a more of the confidence for international investors to get more connected uh, for due diligence and hence decision making and the other is that uh I think we had the worst performance of the past one decade for uh, 2022, so situation will be there to rebound this year. Investors, in they invest into phases. So uh, the phase of uh, a rapid surge in the Chinese economic performance uh, is something that they can't really miss out. So the rising confidence in this year's economic performance will definitely boost their a risk appetite; therefore, they are really gathering uh, pace uh, for the coming opportunities that may unfold. On the other hand, we can also see that uh, during the last month, the production capacity is not really giving a very rosy picture. You know, at least for the short run. So the, it is uh, uh, the PMI is still in a uh, contraction uh, stage. So hopefully. Uh, When they gather the strands, and by the second quarter of this year, uh, there can be quite much of the economic rebound. And so that they are able to gather the strands, gather the resource for a capture of new opportunities.
0: Tell us uh, what kind of um, sectors on China's onshore market uh, could be lucrative or attractive to investors.
14: If you are a big risk, uh, Taker, you know, those frontier technology innovation could be the one. There are a number of projects that could line up uh, uh, with our business school to seek advice and to seek, uh, you know, clue for investment like, you know, the uh, new energy cars and, uh, with uh, the hydrogen or with nuclear fusion breakthroughs. And that really requires a lot more money. So therefore you have to make sure that, uh, you know, there's gonna be a further attraction for a bigger pool of the money. So a single handed investment can be rather risky, uh, although the, the promise can be uh, very big. And uh, to really to play on the safe side, the real economy, uh, the uh, manufacturer of garments and manufacturer of TVs are still uh, rather stable, Elect- uh, other type of electronics and to uh, really to to strike something in the middle between a risk and a risk aversion and so the high-tech with more stabilized technology could be one and more specifically i think the pharmaceutical industry could also be uh, something that is very promising now that the uh, big infection is over but then people will go more for rehabilitation. So they, uh, they continue to buy more of the Chinese medicine, you know, for preventive purposes to enhance the immunity system. And also for the gym program, And uh, you know, people are there, you know, after three years of lying down, uh, laying, uh, lying lazy, they need to go for their bodybuilding. So I think these are really the promising sectors that uh, can really uh,
0: be more visible and more uh, at hand. But there were also concerns. After Beijing's COVID policy shift, the World Bank cut its 2023 growth outlook for China to 4.3% from a forecast in June of 5.2%. Dr. Liu Baocheng and John Ross, senior fellow at the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies, Renmin University of China, provided a different view.
14: The World Bank constantly readjusted their uh, forecast because uh, they face a lot more uh, uncertainties on the global landscape and particularly uh, those major economies like United States and China, etc. So uh, there is really quite a point in slashing the uh, forecast for the growth figure because the lifting of the zero COVID policy does really produce, uh, uh, at the moment, at least a temporary messy situation here. If we simply look out of the window, we see that uh, there are far less people on uh, the public venues and the public transportation vehicles, etc. So uh, this is gonna be a hot hit and it takes uh, quite a while to revive. And there was uh, a rosy picture uh, temporarily uh, during the uh, second quarter And then we really could predict that uh, over the third quarter, China could really move into a recovery mode. But uh, it seems that uh, the uh, virus has been continually mischievous and uh, the tough policy over the lockdown and then a sudden lifting. So such a change really surprises this uh, uh, nation. However. You know, we can really anticipate that uh, next year may bring out a better picture than the uh, expectation of uh, uh, IMF and uh, because uh, the uh, recovery mode will be able to be switched into uh, more sooner than people have anticipated given the Chinese culture and also given the important role that the Chinese government policy can really play.
0: Yeah, I can understand if it's uh, within a short term, uh, the recovery could be not up to expectation. But what about the entire year? Because previously we see some other institutions such as uh, Morgan Stanley raise its forecast for for China's growth for 2023, I think from uh, 5 to 5.4%. But the World Bank cut its 2023 growth outlook for China to 4.3% from a 5.2%. What's behind that, Bo Bocheng?
14: Yes, uh, because there is a conventional belief that uh, uh, whatever the Chinese government has decided over its uh, uh, government report, uh, China will find all the ways to achieve that. But uh, uh, this year is more re- rebellious, uh, I could uh, really see. And uh, the other point is that uh, uh, China, uh, over a broad spectrum, is not really Firmly fixed on growth figure because uh, although the government said around uh, 5.5% as the growth target for this year, uh, it has uh, it remains a uh, rather flexible against uh, a lot of uncertainties. And on the other hand, uh, China is also very much resolved to go for high quality growth and uh, together with further emphasis attached to the environmental quality, so that. Uh, the growth figure is no longer that really overwhelmingly important, and uh, then you know the uh, the COVID situation is really highly disturbing. Of course, you know when China is highly interdependent with the world economy, so that can also drag uh, China down in terms of the supply disruption caused by the Ukraine crisis and also by the uh, roller coaster shifting of the energy prices. So you know that really put the far more pressure than anticipated on the Chinese economic performance.
0: Mm. And John, what's your uh, take here? How rational do you see the cuts by the World Bank?
3: Well, I personally, to make a prediction, think that the World Bank estimate is um, too low. I follow international estimates um, of predictions of growth from um, you know what about thirty years. And um they're not necessarily very accurate. And in this case, I think the World Bank's figure is too low. I don't China's not going to have next year, probably, you know, the type of seven percent growth, uh, et cetera et cetera what one had in the past. But the growth in the third quarter is already three point nine percent. and it was accelerating out of a very bad second quarter. And that's already sufficiently close to the World Bank's um, estimate of 4.3%. I, I think that the World Bank figure is going to be uh, exceeded. I agree that the overall international situation is going to be very negative because we've got to look at China's performance in, relative to other economies as well at the present time. The The U.S. and Europe are certainly slowing down. The only question is whether they will actually go into a recession or not. It's not particularly important in relative terms. Whereas China's economy certainly next year will grow more rapidly than the uh, U.S. and uh, Europe. Even the IMF's projections are for that. So in this case, I think that um, the World Bank figure is not accurate. In my my estimate, I would place a, a reasonable bet on the the number will come in
0: above the World Bank one. We'll have to wait till the end of the year to see which prediction stands closer to reality. As for now, what China can do is stay focused, as the recovery ahead may not come without a hitch. On that note, we wrap up this special episode. Please feel free to leave a review or comment for us, and subscribe to the Chat Lounge wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Tung Thank you for being with us. Bye for now.